where they have actually told us in plain English, in good American. Yes, as George Adamski said many years ago, disclosure is going to happen in, 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 presently. It's already Mysterio, so let's do the um, the opening that everybody loves. Wow, all showing up here is this Adamski stuff. That's weird. Oh, here we go. I added a bunch of stuff on the uh, computer here, and it's there's tons of it now, including. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Yeah, to go close the door. It is damned hot in here, and I'm sure it is where Chris is too. So let me fade that down and uh, plug Chris O'Brien in here in the phone. Whoa. Stop playing the theme. That's coming straight out of the computer speaker now. That's loud. Professional fade out. Chris, can you hear me? There we go. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Oh, there we go. Indeed. Yeah, as promised um, a couple weeks ago, and I think last week, but things conspired against us, uh, Chris O'Brien is back here. He... I'm not sure, but Chris might have made the most appearances on this show outside of Adam Gorightly and Bill Moore. Um, people should know who Chris is. It's probably best known for his um, uh, investigations in the San Luis Valley in um, southern Colorado, uh, among other things, a cattle mutilation phenomenon there, but many other things uh, uh, documented in his uh, Mysterious Valley trilogy. What was it? Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and um, Secrets of the Mysterious, Mysterious Valley. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, his latest book, <clears throat> uh, which came out a couple years ago, was called Stalking the Tr Tricksters. We had Chris on to talk about that. He has a um, basically a uh, overview and a new uh, uh, theory about the cattle mutilation phenomenon, or theories, uh, coming out pretty soon. Uh, what's the name of that book, Chris, and when? Uh, it's another stalking book, Stalking the Herd. Oh, okay, because um, wasn't the first uh, 
the first cattle mutilation book ever was called Mystery Stalks the Prairie, right? Yeah, that was Keith Wolverton uh, book. Yeah. Uh, some a friend of mine sent me a photocopy of that many years ago. It's 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 a fascinating That's book. That's a real one. Yeah, because people didn't at that point like a lot of uh, things that interest me. When people don't quite know what they're doing yet, I'm very interested because there's not a there's not a set bunch of rules yet, so people are free to break them. You know. Yeah, so right. that, that's a great book. Chris is, Chris is a great one for breaking rules, too, which is why I have him on the show. And it, it's it's uh, sweltering over there in uh, Arizona, right? Oh, my God. I have no idea. Is it humid, too? Yeah, we almost had some rain today. It rained about 20 miles away, but uh, it, it oh, it's just been brutal here. We've had, you know, triple-digit temperatures for the last two months. It's, it's, it was 114 on Friday. <laughs> And this is like up in the in the uh, mountains in Arizona too. It's not like down in the yeah. The I'm mountains. almost up as high as Sedona. I'm at 3,500 feet, and and uh, you know it occasionally in July and August they'll get up you know just above 100. But but to have it above 100 in April is like you know May is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I don't know if that's due to global warming or temperature. There's a glacier in where is it Iceland that they or Sweden that they cover with a blanket every summer now, so it doesn't melt. <laughs> they Wouldn't actually it. it looks like a big Christo uh, art installation but it, yeah they cover it with a with fabric. Yeah. Well, it's uh I don't know what it is but boy it sure is hot if it's anything. <laughs> yeah, it's it was nasty here too today. I went to a baseball game and everybody's just sweltering. There was no no wind, no nothing. I went flying this morning and the uh, density altitude was really high so I was coming in really hot fast because there wasn't as, wasn't as much air around. Yeah. So uh, it was get all. Get used to it. Yeah. Better get used to it. When I talked to you uh, over the last week or so, a couple days ago actually, you said that you had been to the disclosure hearings, all of them. And I don't know anybody that has done. Well, I guess I do know people have done that, but I haven't asked them about it. So I guess we can talk about it a bit because um, I'm trying to figure out if they were useful or not. What do you think? Well, you know, I, when I went into it, Greg, you know, I, I, of course, never would have gone unless I'd been hired to uh, help shoot the video. Uh, I was working with the video crew that was, you know, supplying the uh, the live stream and and uh, and they're producing a, you know, a, a DVD package uh, of the entire proceedings. But I, I never would have gone. I mean, I'm, you know, me, I. I think there's a snowball's chance in Arizona for a <laughs> disclosure to ever happen, uh, at least from this government. But So I went in uh, rather jaundiced, cynical, and dated, and was uh, pleasantly surprised. I thought that actually uh, the whole thing... Sorry? I thought it was... Um, uh, it, it was an interesting exercise, and I, I think uh, some, some positive things came out of it. And... Um, Unfortunately, like all, you know, baskets of apples, all it takes is one or two apples, uh, bad apples, to spoil the the bunch. And uh, there were some, I thought, some questionable choices uh, to have on the witness uh, side of the proceedings. Um, Do you, you know, I've never it? been that big of a fan of uh, the personality of Stephen Greer. I've always thought that his message was way more important than he was. And... Uh, you know, he uh, he definitely was true to form. You know, he's quite the uh, self-promoter. Linda Howe also, uh, I thought, was quite disappointing. She 
she was a shadow of her former self. And uh, I think that the real, the real dud was uh, the honorable Paul Hellyer. Coming up the entire proceedings that you know on the last uh, presentation on the last day by reading verbatim out of Jim Sparks' questionable account of his abduction experience and reading the uh, <laughs> the dialogue of the ETs warning us about ourselves and uh, it was just I, I tried to tickle my nose so that I could sneeze and, and do the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get myself. So, I, unfortunately, I, but I was, man, I tell you, I looked around the room and anybody who was anybody that knows anything about the subject was just squirming, rolling their eyes and so fine. And it was actually pretty grim. I, I felt that that was a real letdown. But I think uh, all in all, uh, it, it was a positive exercise. I think it uh, it generated some, you know, some mainstream uh coverage, uh, the New York Times, I think, uh, actually came out with a fairly even-handed uh, article about the proceedings, and uh, that's the first time in, that I can recall for decades that uh, the New York Times hasn't really done anything but uh, totally ridicule the whole subject. So I think just, just for, for that, uh, <laughs> it was almost worth it, but, you know, again, I, I think it's... it's uh, you know, we're barking up the wrong tree with the whole subject. I, I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that the U.S. government is going to admit that they're more confused than we are and not in control of the UFO situation. I, I think it's just ludicrous that anybody thinks uh, that they'll ever fess up to uh, the extent of official government knowledge. And, and, Greg, I think both you and I agree that probably most of the real hardcore information has probably already been sequestered into the private sector. So uh, well, there's no yeah. way you're going to do an FOIA request, uh, you know, to some of the aerospace companies. It's just it doesn't work that way. Well, that and I don't, I don't know how naive I am, but I tend to think that it's by our thought process and our way of thinking about things, at least the greater part of the, the Western society, it is unknowable at this point, uh, exactly what it is. The, the admission, I think, would be that there's something else besides us that impinges on our reality occasionally, and that's a little that's kind of tough to describe, although there, there are the hardcore nuts and bolts kind of things which you, you can't throw out. But the thing is, until everybody can see this on demand or, or in some way which is really obvious to a lot of people, including people that just can't, you know, to the play, point where you can't deny it, people can disclose anything they want or talk about anything they want, and I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. No, I think if Barack Obama trotted out an alien uh, holding hands with a little three-foot-high alien and did a, a press conference, uh, there'd be a sizable percentage of the population that wouldn't believe it, even if it was put in their face. So, Well, I probably, know, I, wouldn't, I, I I probably wouldn't believe it either. I'd wonder what the hell they were up to. <laughs> exactly. So, it, it, to me, I think it's I think we need to really exhaust all efforts to um, interest academia and science uh, to get involved and, and get you know as much hard data as we possibly can. And and really, the other side of the coin is to really promote and um, inspire creative thinkers out there. We need a whole new generation of folks coming up uh, with the you know with some new new ways to approach. Uh, 
a subject that really has um, been spinning its wheels for 60 plus years. And I think we, you know, we talked about this obviously before, but uh, we need a whole new generation of, of creative thinkers getting involved. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any of those yet. I mean, you know, Mac Tony's was one of them. Micah Han- Hanks, I'd probably put on that list. But what what I think you're talking about, and what I would be talking about in that regard, is somebody that doesn't isn't a UFO person at all. Just somebody who has right. a really good grounding in some other discipline that gets very interested in and looks at it there from their point of view and suddenly has some kind of breakthrough that makes sense to a lot of people. Yeah, 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 I agree. And I don't know who that would be. You know, maybe it's Michio Kaku or maybe it's, you know, I don't know. But just, just somebody with the smarts and, more importantly, the way to, to explain it to the, you know, explain what their idea is and their breakthrough is to everybody else and make it obvious to them. Um, I think that would probably break it open uh, a yeah, little bit it's anyway. Of course, for the tree scenario, I'm sure. Yeah, I saw the MUFON thing for this year. They had, there was a big banner that said, oh, we've changed everything. We're moving into the 21st century, and everything is different now. And it was all disclosure stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of wondering what was going on there. I mean, you'll find every once in a while here and there, you'll find somebody you know, uh, giving an interesting new perspective or at least a fresh perspective on something we've thought about for years occasionally those will pop up at little conferences here and there but they don't get like the uh the 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 national attention which is why and i don't know if you agree with me i I think that large-scale ufo groups should be done away with actually they've mostly done away with themselves because of a lack of interest i think well i and i agree i think the whole paradigm has shifted uh with the technology of the internet and and you know the awesome power of of, of networking. Uh, it, it just it really has kind of created a a dinosaur. I think with the the old paradigm of how the UFO groups try to put butts in chairs and in cities. Uh, you know, uh, every so often, every few times a year. I, it, it, the kids the kids uh, today just aren't interested in that. And uh, it's really going to take a new generation of creative thinkers to to pull this thing uh, kicking and screaming into the future. It's just not, you know, there's there's a there's a few people like yourself and Nick and Redfern and Mike, as you mentioned, Micah and and you know the late Matt Tonys who who you know have been looking at this this whole situation from from nice oblique angles. And it's going to take uh, it's going to take that sort of groundswell in, in creative thinking to really pull the thing forward. And and you know this is we sound like a broken record. We've I know so but, many times. Yeah. Uh, but maybe even somebody is as I, I'm sorry to say as evangelical as somebody like Stephen Greer to really push something and get people listening. I mean, I think that's the main part of the. After after a bunch of researchers have accepted, yes, this is something new and something we should really pursue, just really pushing that point of view so that um, people get interested in it and there's a lot of people working on the problem or working on it from that angle. And, and as you've been suggesting, democratizing it. Yeah. And I think I think we really need to start looking at it sort of in a nonlinear fashion as well. I think there's a quantum uh, sort of, you know, observer effect that's going on. And, and that's one thing about Greer's approach of, you know, his idea of coherent thought sequencing and opening up groups of people to uh, new information or contact, however you want to, you know, describe it. I, I think he uses outmoded terminology and, and his approach is, is rather shallow and, and, and two-dimensional. But the idea behind it, I think, is, is fairly creative and fairly sound. And, and, you know, I think there's, there's hope for 
some sort of interactive quality uh, that hasn't really been fully explored yeah. since, you know, some of the contactees in the 50s. And, of course, you know, most of them were probably delusional, but they may have been on to something. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, obviously, anything short of uh, the phenomenon, you know, taking the uh, the ball and uh, running with it, and you know, landing on the White Horse House lawn or in the, you know, in Red Square or something, or Tiananmen yeah. Square. I think anything short of that is always going to leave the subject uh, marginalized, and it's going to preempt any sort of, uh, you know, I think mass acceptance of uh, the importance of this and and this really could be you know earth-shatteringly important uh yeah well you know what it might be and i keep pushing this too is i've got this idea when you said you know that the phenomenon needs to you know might need to make some kind of big kind of push i've got this idea that in a lot of ways we are their instrument yeah <laughs> it's funny and uh, but yeah, uh, we might forget that right. and that and they are limited and we are limited to the to the performance of our instrument yeah, and we only as uh, we only allow ourselves to be as as forward thinking as the the scope and limit of our imaginations and creativity, and and unfortunately, you know, it's it's that old adage that you know I think Einstein came up with that any you know the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again expecting a different result. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think that's a classic. Uh, this would be a classic example of that analogy being true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is the, uh, how far are you on the new book? Can you give any kind of um, preview of it? And uh, when can I see it so I can write the intro? <laughs> well, uh, gosh, they've already put it up on Amazon. It's already like selling copies. Of, I'd say I'm about two thirds done. I'm looking at this whole you know, livestock death, uh, unexplained livestock death mystery, you know, is objectively and from, from a, a fresh, as, as fresh as possible perspective. I'm, I'm really looking at humankind's relationship with cattle. Ah. And uh, the more I research the amazing history and symbiotic, almost incestuous relationship that we have with livestock, the, the more... I don't know, just amazing it is to me. Um, you know, like some little-known facts that most people probably aren't aware of that, you know, they've done some pretty uh, interesting studies, uh, with DNA genetic studies, and uh, the latest results uh, indicate that all 1.37 billion cattle on the planet are all derived from a single herd of 80 animals that were domesticated out of wild aurochs in northern Iran about 12,000 years ago. And that's, uh, that's, that, that's pretty mind-blowing to me, that, yeah. uh, that we could have uh, such diversity. There's 940-something-odd uh, separate species of cattle now, and, uh, and we've got uh, all these, you know, uh, 1.3 billion cattle on the planet. They're all basically all descendants from 80 animals. I mean, that to me is just amazing. And and just the exalted uh, relationship that and and role that cattle have played in, in throughout human history and how, you know, cows were among the most sacred things on the planet to humans for for, you know, millennia and and now, you know, we uh unceremoniously and without any ritual slaughter, you know, two thousand cattle to three thousand cattle an hour on this and this just in this country and 
and uh, you know just how all this this ebbing and flowing of uh, sacred and, and unceremonious relationship uh, with cattle has uh, devolved into what we see today uh, with the you know the emergence of fungiform encephalopathies, uh, you know, and mad cow disease, uh, and um, just the incredible degradation of the environment. The cattle are pretty much, uh, you know, the second most, you know, detrimental thing on the planet besides humans are cattle. And I think all this is tied in, and no one's really attempted to to really look at the cattle mutilation phenomenon, um, you know, looking at the relationship that we've uh, maintained with cattle for thousands of years, and nobody's really factored any of that information in. So mm-hmm. this, to me, is really an important aspect of the of the book that I'm spending a lot of time on and um, and really attempting to, to put the cattle mutilation uh, mystery into some form of context that, that makes sense to someone who's looking at it maybe for the first time and say, well, you know, if these cattle are being discovered, mutilated, and and found in, 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 you know, disfigured in this horrific way, you know, what could be, what could be behind this? And I, I think Linda Howe, you know, has done amazing work uh, for, you know, 30 years, 40 years, but I think her conclusions are totally off base. I don't think we're dealing with aliens coming here and gathering parts for Lip and I stew. And, you know, uh, she went droning on and on at the citizen hearing about how important this whole mystery is. And then she, you know, she claims that you can sum it all up by by blaming aliens for coming down and gathering genetic material. And I wanted to stand up and scream, well, why don't they just break the lock on a rendering plant and get all the blood and genetic material they could possibly want? I wonder if anybody's ever asked her that question. The first thing that I, you know, recently I was thinking about it and I was like, we only need to sample. I think I talked to you about it. Maybe that's where we only need to sample anything once. Right. Humans only need to sample anything once to get all the information out of it. Yeah, Why exactly. over and over and over and over and over again? Well, I mean, if it is some sort of sampling process, obviously you want to adjust baseline data and that sort of thing. And there is some, you know, some evidence to suggest that's part of what's going on. But you know, people say, "Well, what's the answer to the cattle mutilation mystery?" And it's like I wish there was one size fits all uh, <laughs> an explanation, uh, but it's it's much more complicated than that. It's multiple groups with multiple agendas. I think we're seeing environmental monitoring. I think we're seeing ritual uh, cult activity. I think we're seeing people uh, with six senses of humor trying to hoax others. Uh, Obviously, a vast majority, I think, of the cases are misidentified scavenger action. But, you know, again, uh, it's just such a complicated subject. And now I know why I haven't bothered... (laughs) sitting down and really applying myself to uh, to write this book for 20 years because it's really tough. It's a huge subject. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. I mean, it's, it, all this stuff excites me. The main thing that excites me about what you said is that, you know, when somebody says what's behind it or what what causes it, it's like, well, that's you can't even ask that question. Well, you can, no, but be prepared to sit really down for yeah, be, everything. I mean, yeah. ad infinitum. Yeah, be pre- prepared to sit down for like, you know, a few hours and get a background in all this stuff. Um, yeah. I had this idea probably, and we can talk about Gabe Valdez and his son's book, and we, I, I haven't even read it. Did you get it yet? Yeah, he sent me, he sent me a PDF a couple of days ago. I just have been so busy and, and just too just too hot. <laughs> yeah. 
to read. I've looked I've at been, I've oh looked at God, little. I've been melting over here. Yeah. I've looked really at bits ridiculous. and pieces of it. I've I've started on it. I've kind of jumped around the book and looked around. And I'm going to you know settle in and start. I just finally started reading it from the beginning, and I've gotten like through half a chapter. Yep. Anyway, but the 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 um, the thing that Gabe used to push with me and probably you was the um, was the uh, uh, what's what can you say? The, what did you call it? The, uh, the the pathogen in the in the cattle population and somebody secretly sampling that as being part of it. How, how much credence do you put in that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a highly important aspect of this and and may account for. Maybe the actual causative sort of element uh, behind a, a sizable percentage of the real cases that aren't misidentified scavenger action that are truly, you know, animals that have been, uh, you know, cruelly uh, killed and disfigured. I think uh, that we are seeing sampling of uh, the food chain for, for transmissible spongiform encephalopathies and, and possibly other things that we're not even aware of. By whom? That's a good question. Um, you know, some sort of quasi, uh, you know, governmental sort of health kind of uh, secret CDC or NHI or NIH uh, type type group um, with the aid of, uh, you know, helicopter technology and maybe even exotic uh, technology. Uh, it's It's definitely an aspect, no question in my mind. Okay, then the, the the next question that follows from that is is um, why why dump the cattle back if you've you've able to you've been able to take them and do whatever you need to do to them? What, what's what's the point of bringing them back and freaking out the ranchers? Well, uh, you, uh, you actually that's a good question, and, and people ask it all the time. And, and my my uh, my stock answer has been for years that number one, if they do take the cattle and don't return them, then it's grand theft. Ah. Um, you have a crime and a police report has to be filed, but if you leave it there, you have plausible deniability. Yeah. You know, it could be just chalked off, chalked up to uh, unusual appearing scavenger action or, right. uh, you know, ranchers, you know, and people say, well, it's all insurance fraud. These ranchers are doing it to collect insurance money, and little do people know that most of these ranches that are, that are victimized are small operations, they're, you know, family family farmers, family ranchers, and, and most of them don't, you know, they can't afford to insure their herds. So, you know, I think that there's cultural, you know, some sort of cultural manipulation going on. A lot of the areas that are hardest hit tend to be where a lot of militia groups are, where you have uh, real patriotic uh, gun-toting Americans. And, and it, it could be a possible way of socially engineering fear into uh, you know, volatile ranching communities where you 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 do tend to see militia groups uh, uh, and super right wing kind of political libertarian sort of folks, uh, you know, keeping them in their place. I mean, there's there's it's pretty ingenious uh, the way the whole thing kind of kind of you know kind of flushes out. Um, and then, of course, you go down to South America, where we've had. You know, possibly upwards of 3,000 cases since 2002. And we had almost a complete cessation of activity in North America around 99, 2000. And there was about a lull of about a year, and then boom, all these cases after 9/11 started appearing down in the largest cattle herds. Uh, you know, areas where the largest cattle herds are found, and and uh, so some sort of quasi, you know, 
governmental or multinational group that's doing this uh, may, down in that particular instance, may have been uh, monitoring this better foot and mouth disease, which is a real problem down there that was unacknowledged for quite a while. And mm-hmm. and there was some real there's some real smoking gun evidence that suggests that possibly they were monitoring the spread of uh, of other cattle diseases down in South America. This is not just a you know, Western United States yeah. um, phenomenon. I mean, Philip Hoyle with the Animal Field uh, uh, Pathology Unit uh, uh, over in in United Kingdom, uh, he's uncovered some amazing uh, cases among the sheep herds along the Welsh-UK uh, border, some amazing cases that, um, that he's been investigating there for the last 10 years. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of very interesting... Uh, Ins and outs. This thing is not a one size fits all. You know, yeah. it's aliens coming down gathering parts for genetic material. I mean, that to me is the least likely thing that's going on here. I think we're seeing something a lot more down to earth and homespun, and and frankly, uh, more sinister and, and more alarming. I mean, my God, if we, you know, how do we know that mad cow disease wasn't weaponized and it got loose in the cattle herds in, in the mid to late sixties? You know, yeah, uh, that's there's a real possibility that, that might be an operative uh, scenario that's going on. So, you know, the book the book dives into all these different theories and it allows the particular investigators who feel that they're onto something, onto a particular as, uh, answer or onto a particular explanation. You know, I'm allowing everybody equal say in in presenting their particular, you know, point of view and their evidence and uh and then coming up with uh you know, a synthes a synthesized explanation or analysis at the end, which uh, is going to be <laughs> pretty interesting once I get around to doing that part of it. <laughs> yeah, that'll probably... That's that'll probably have to do in three months, let's put it that way. Yeah, well, that's probably going to be the most difficult part for you, I guess it sounds like it, because you can't... You've got to take all these little strings or tentacles or whatever that's, that are moving and trying to put some kind of head on it, which I don't know if you can, except... With what you first said, what's our relationship with cattle? Uh, what has it been throughout history? What is it now? And where could it be headed vis-a-vis, you know, uh, both of us being, uh, both our species being uh, threatened with with uh, health problems, uh, either created by us or whatever, probably most likely created by uh, some sort of uh, germ warfare research. Yeah, well, cattle, cattle are, are, you know, in terms of their impact on the environment, I mean, they're one of the largest sources of uh, freshwater pollution, one of the largest causes of desertification, creation of deserts, one of the main reasons why we're cutting down the rainforest uh, to make room for more cattle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, some of the, the facts and figures about the fast food industry and the beef industry and, and uh, you know, the the utilization of, of beef protein as a food source, uh, it, it's just, it's it's an untenable situation that, that cannot continue and will not last, uh, I don't think, uh, for too many more decades. I think I think uh, at some point cattle are going to be outlawed as, as a protein source because of their immense, uh, you know, just degradation of the, of the environment, the impact they have on the environment, I think. I think that, that that alone is going to, uh, you know, uh, really cause cause some uh, some real some real uh, changes in the way that we 
we utilize uh, animal protein. I think yeah. everyone that, that eats meat uh, in America should be required to go through a three-day training course or a licensing uh, course that shows them exactly how that meat gets from from the birth canal to, uh, you know, <laughs> the plastic wrap styrofoam in, the, in a supermarket. And I yeah. think if everybody knew exactly what went into getting that particular, you know, meat to uh, from the, you know, the, the, the birth of the animal to the end rendering process and the source in the, in the, in the store, that I'll bet you 50, 60% of the people that went through that process would instantly become vegetarians. <laughs> Do you go through that in the book? Yeah. Oh, good. Did it make you a vegetarian? No, I still eat meat, but but rarely. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not a. You know, I haven't had a, a Big Mac or you know a fast food hamburger in many years. Um, I do. Uh, I do think very carefully every time I do eat meat. Yeah. Yeah. There's also that this grosses people out, but they've they've gotten to the point where they're growing beef like uh, as uh, in culture. To the point where well, it, well it, cattle aren't aren't detrimental so much uh, to the environment um, if they if they're kept moving. That's why in Africa, you know, the migrating undulates, uh, you know, the sub-Saharan um, actually are very good for the environment uh, because they keep moving, they keep uh, churning up the soils, they keep uh, you know depositing fertilizer. Yeah. But it's when you stick them in, in rendering the uh, feedlots and and rendering yards that uh, you know the effluent, the water that. They use to wash down the uh, the feedlots, you know, gets into the to the water table, and then it's sprayed on our vegetables. And we have outbreaks of E. coli on spinach and those sorts of things. So yeah. you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of pass along damage that that occurs when you when you keep cattle penned up and and uh, and keep them dumbed down in large masses. That's that's when you really create uh, some really environmental problems, <laughs> big time. So yeah. you know, I, I raise all these issues. It's not like I'm the first one to. To raise them, but I'm the first one to look at all these issues and then factor in the 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 symbolic quality and the sort of the I don't know. It's almost like a, a stigmata that that occurs <laughs> in the culture with the cattle mutilations. I think it, it could be collectively us warning ourselves. Uh, is one uh, theory David Perkins came up with uh, yeah. a number of years back. We may be seeing a form of the cultural stigmata. Uh, I think all these theories have relevance, and I think they're all operative. I think we, we may be seeing, you can't factor anything out, and you can't factor anything in. You have to look at all the evidence and really and really determine how all these uh, different possible scenarios are kind of moving and shaking and, and undulating around uh, kind of in a dance, really. Yeah, the problem is people look at things either from a, very narrow point of view or a belief based you know point of view mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. it it's hard to kind of step back and look at things which it sounds like you you've done in this book and i i can't wait to see it but um it i think it it's this is probably the the cattle mutilation book that that i've heard people say they wanted to write but there's not too many too too many people re, you know uh qualified to write it except you i was trying to shop this idea around years ago and people say oh nobody wants a book about that and i'm kind of happy they said that now because that's I, true yeah. i mean i got 23 rejection letters when i first tried to shop this idea back in 99 yeah i mean yeah, every, was... and every every letter that i got back from publishers had either the word fear or afraid in it. like i'm afraid this isn't what we're looking for i fear this is not what you know what 
you know, it was not would not be good for our particular list. Uh, but uh, my my agent pointed out, isn't it interesting how fear and afraid is coming out in all these letters? And it's yeah. Like, well, you know. well, that's funny. Well, Usually, you put a book out that scares people, and it sells really well. So, what was the problem <laughs> with scaring people about cattle? Is that just a little too close to home, or what? Hey, people don't want to know that uh, Ronald McDonald is a trickster that's uh, <laughs> here to upset the environment. They, you know, people don't want to know that. <laughs> The other thing that came to mind when you were saying this about the, you know, getting a little bit more, um, well, less less nuts and bolts was the the uh, either the Gaia thing or or Jim Brandon's idea about the 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 uh, the Earth itself being a trickster and and, and um, s- somehow arranging things so that it will call attention to something or. Or screw around with people, or whatever. I mean, it's it's admittedly for a lot of people that's a that's a wacky model, but that you know we we can't throw that one out either. I don't think. Absolutely not. In fact, it's going to be I think uh, highlighted um, strongly in the book. I, I think there is some s- sort of Gaian stigmata or message that's inherent in all this. Um, it could be multiple groups all intermeshed into you know an overarching agenda that the planet may have. Uh, in relation to cattle and our utilization or mis misutilization of them, uh, you know it's not. You know people don't want to talk about uh, the hamburger that uh, they buy at the grocery store. They they don't want to know how it got there. They they yeah. just know that it's good and it tastes good. And it's they not they like being scared if it can be objectified in some way that doesn't involve them directly. Yeah, well, hopefully. Well, that's. I think that I think you know. I was confused at first when I only shopped it around to a few people, but they're like, "No, I don't think anybody wants to know this. This is too scary." It's like, but but it concerns everyone, especially almost every you know, everyone that eat, eats meat, which is a lot of people. And I think, that, like you said, that's that's the crux of the problem. They don't want it. It hits too close to home. Right. Sometimes, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. I think, and definitely in this particular scenario. Um, People don't want to know the truth. It's, it's like, like you know, what I attempted to do with the trickster book is point out that there's a tricksterish uh, element. It's like the 6,000-pound gorilla that's, like, drumming its toes on the coffee table and everybody's <laughs> living room and everybody's, like, got, totally got the blinders on. They don't want to know about it. Yeah. They don't care. <laughs> you know? It, it, yeah. And it's the same with the cattle. And, and the unusual livestock death or unexplained livestock death phenomenon. People just don't care unless you're a rancher and you lose... I had livestock, and you're in here for your family or for your neighbors. It's not, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's not a, an issue that most people even want to even know about, let alone contemplate and, and research. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think the book's needed. I think Chris is, he's about the only person I can think of to be qualified to write the book, and it sounds, like I said, it sounds incredible, fascinating, and um, if not the answer, quote unquote, a huge step in the direction of understanding of what's been going on. The only problem is you can't come into it saying I'm going to find out the answer at the end of this book because it doesn't sound like that. No, I, it's like I said. I think there's multiple groups involved with multiple agendas, but they all have an overarching sort of imperative that's going on, and it may may have to do with some sort of you know Gaian Gaian sort of agenda i mean for lack of a better you know terminology uh you know that's the only only real 
way that I can that I can put it. Um, at this point, you know, I may stumble on some incredible information here in the next couple of months, uh, but I doubt it. I think I've pretty much, you know, I've been keeping tabs on this whole thing for 20 years, and and you know, I'm, there's not many of us that have been doing that, and and um, it's really difficult to go into this with, without blinders on, without any real set in stone preconceptions, uh, allowing the material to sort of speak for itself instead of trying to prove some sort of foregone conclusion like Linda does or, um, you know, Tom Adams and others that have come uh, before. I mean, this is not, this is not simply misidentified scavenger action. I'm sorry, you know. I mean, the National Institute of Discovery Sciences, uh, the 11Good, uh, you know, the, the Royal Canadian Mountain Police Crime Lab. I mean, there, there have been some pretty interesting uh, lab results from cases that, that definitely indicate that there is something at the core of this phenomenon. Once you factor out all the media-induced hysteria yeah. and misidentified, you know, scavenger action, which I think really is majority of the cases um, out there, um, once you factor those mundane uh, cases uh, away, you are left with with a true mystery. And you know, I'm I'm going to be debunking parts of this whole you know pop culture sort of mythos. But at the yeah. same time, I'm going to be glaring even more scrutiny on the cases that deserve our attention and and maybe indicative of some really amazing uh, kind of a super consolation of causes um you know it's this is this is a, a meme in the culture but it's it, it may be tied into some other really amazing um things that have to do with with religion belief and and um and just the very way we uh we look at you know our fellow our fellow animals on the planet and how we utilize them and uh it's uh it's huge i <laughs> I almost wish I hadn't started getting involved in this because it's like a tar baby, you know. And I, I kissed the, the, the this little fucker, you know, 20 years ago, and it stuck to my face. So I gotta <laughs> gotta deal with. <laughs> Did you, I, in the course of all this, I mean, getting back to the, um, and we'll move off the uh, animal death thing here in a little while, but um, did you get any like? names, names of companies, names of people, names of organizations, things you could look up, something that would point a finger at anything? I have. Uh, you know, I've, I've been, you know, overturning every stone that I feel um, is, is could possibly, you know, help. And, you know, there's, there's some pretty interesting... Uh, uh, how would I put this? Um, there's some pretty interesting trends that I've seen that have kind of ebbed and flowed through this whole thing, and some some coincidental uh, information. Just the the just the whole way the correlations kind of line up um, in terms of some of the weaponization of, of pathogens and things getting loose into the environment. And there, there is some interesting. Uh, research uh, that will be presented, and uh, but this is you know this is kind of touchy subject matter, and uh, it's yeah. going to take uh, some nuancing to uh, present it properly without without being too uh, 
putting myself in harm's way, shall we say. Yeah, well, that you know, that's that's kind of what I was getting at there, sort of when I said specific names and and, and of individuals or entities involved with the side that you could you, you could check up on, and if you found any of that, I guess it'll be in the book. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have. I'm still in the midst of, of of digging on on some of this, and you know, you know I'm really going to have to be careful about uh, about some of the. Uh, innuendo that I present and, and some of the facts and, and a lot of it will kind of be left up to the reader to uh, to place relative importance um, on but uh, this is a really complicated subject and it's not cut and dried as, as we started out the conversation uh, this is very very dense um, very very um, complicated ground and and it, it's really going to take um, every ounce of my objectivity to present it in a way that allows um, the reader to kind of weigh the evidence in their own mind. Um, obviously, I will have my own yeah. analysis of this, and I will allow um, a handful of fellow investigators that are really involved in this, um, I will allow them as much or as little rope to hang themselves in their own theories. But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's again. Uh, I think it's so complicated that at this point, I really couldn't. You know, I couldn't really say, "Greg, I figured it out. It's this, this, and this." It, it's just not. It's just yeah. not that way. It's just too complicated, and there's too much involved uh, when you're talking about potentially a global phenomenon. Um, you can't blame it on the U.S. government. You can't blame it on uh, you know on on the media. You can't blame it on the lack of law enforcement follow-up and and, and scientific follow-up. Um, it's you can't blame it on religious belief. Um, all this stuff is all tied in together, and so it's 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 a, a thick, bloody stew. <laughs> yeah, it's rolling on the stove. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm I'm glad somebody that really looks at it from uh, a non dogmatic perspective. At least it sounds like it to me. Has written a book on this. I I remember one time I I when I spoke about. Um, cattle mutilation mentioned it in in a, in a lecture. I don't know why, but Linda Howe took me aside and she said, "You know all those gas masks and all those things, all those things that people have found." I said, "Yeah." She said, "The aliens put those there to make it think, make us think it's people doing it." <laughs> yeah, all the helicopter sightings are UFOs masquerading as helicopters. I think that's her. And I kind of find that even harder to believe than than. Aliens doing it somehow, at least for myself. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what else I was going to say about it. The the um, the idea that we can pin it down to one thing is just kind of it, it, I, I, any any aspect of the paranormal, that any of the phenomenon we look at it. The idea that we can pin it down to a thing and say that is it is I I I would hope I would hope that that idea is dead in the next you know ten years or so. Yeah, there's no one-size-fits-all answer for any of this stuff. That's why we find it endlessly fascinating and why it's intellectually challenging and it really makes you uh, question I remember what I was your, your very process of, of objectifying anything. I mean, it, That's it, why it, I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so this is like the ultimate sort of Rubik's Cube. It's like trying to do a Rubik's Cube uh, with, with, with a blindfold on. <laughs> Just hope that you're... Your intuition is correct. You know, it's 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 really dense dense terrain. Uh, no question about it. Yeah. 
I remember what I was going to say. Remember Peter Jordan? Mm-hmm. Did I, I, I've told you that story about interviewing him, and then we got very deep into it, and we started talking about Ken Thomas's book, The Octopus. We started, right. we got very deep in, this was in 1998 or 7. Well, I, I remember you had him on your show. And I, I had, well, he was on Robert Larson's show, um, uh, Cartoon Pleroma, back then when he was broadcasting from KUCI in Irvine. And he said, "Can you get me a guest?" I said, "Yeah, let's get um, let's get Peter Jordan on. I've been corresponding with him, and it's fascinating talking to him on the phone." So we did this for an hour. I posted that show actually on the on the Radio Mysterioso site. I found the tape, and I taped probably ninety five percent of the episode. And then he said, at the end of the hour, we're like, geez, well, there's so much we haven't gone over. You want to come on again? He goes, yeah, sure. It's like two weeks later, we set up the time, we set up the date. He said, sure. And then two, two or three days before the show, he called and said, I don't want to do the show. I'm not going to do anything with the subject anymore. And it's freaking me out. And that's it. And he never responded to anything I sent him ever again. No phone yeah, call. Ted no. Oliphant, same thing. Uh, I think the last time he ever publicly talked about it was on the Paracast. Huh. I had him and Philip Hoyle, my first. My first hosting job uh, with Gene on the Paracast, yeah. I had around with, with those two, and, and uh, after that I got a, an email from Ted saying, don't ever call me and ask me anything about this anymore, I don't want to be associated with it, uh, I'm out of this, I, I'm done, uh, you know, okay, don't, that's... don't ever mention me publicly yeah, so mean, that's really that's did, yeah that's two. What happened? I was like, whoa! What what happened, dude? Yeah. What do you think happened? It sounds similar. What do you think happened? You know, the first thing is like somebody told him to shut up. Well, maybe, but maybe it's not that no, simple. I don't think so. I, I think I think you know it, it's it's freaky territory, and once you start getting into bacteriological uh, warfare experiments. Uh, and you, you start you know, uncovering what you think is smoking gun evidence of a clandestine uh, program by some quasi-military group, uh, it, it starts to play with your head. And um, Ted, of course, you know, was one of the first people to, to suggest that there was a link with mad cow disease. He, he and I arrived at that same conclusion pretty much 97, 98, right at the height of the U.K., um, outbreak of uh, BSE and you know they of course ended up slaughtering all six million head of cattle on the English yeah. you know <laughs> the British Isles and uh, and burning them all and all that prion laden bone ash ended up being spread all over the planet 70 different countries bought it for fertilizer and <laughs> you know once you get to a certain place with this you, you unless you're really grounded, um, you tend to kind of get overloaded by it. Uh, Tom Adams, you know, was like my, my, my padrone grandfather, sort of the guy that taught me how to research. He, he ended up uh, disappearing. I mean, nobody that I know that knew him had seen him or talked to him for 12 years, 13 years. I mean, he disappeared off the map. His research buddy blew his brains out. I mean, this, <laughs> you know, this oh, yeah. is... Uh, this is not territory for, uh, uh, you know, for casual um, involvement, and uh, and it's very very uh, dicey terrain. And and you know, I, I I'm just I'm pretty strong, and yeah, I've got a good support structure around me intellectually and 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 stuff. And and so I I'm able I think to keep this into some sort of objectives, keep it at arm's length, you know, keep perspective about it, but. 
it's this this is you know it this makes the UFOs look like uh, you know kindergarten you know <laughs> learning how to read in kindergarten. I mean this is this is really heavy duty stuff once you really start getting into it and you you start looking at the lab reports and you know reading that story about the Skinwalker Ranch or the rancher and his wife are in the same field and one of these animals is discovered 300 yards away after they just it was fought minutes before and it's totally torn apart with no blood anywhere I, this is not <laughs> this is not the, the territory for the uh, the weak willed or the um, shrieking violet types let's put it that way and, and anybody can burn out you know I burned yeah. out for a couple of years I couldn't deal with it Thank God we didn't have any cases occurring. I just had to totally drop it and just not, yeah, not be involved in it um, for a while. And um, you know, I got dragged, dragged back into it because you know, I got calls from law enforcement and the ranchers saying, "Hey, you know, this stuff's still going on." So some people they just reach a breaking point. They reach a saturation point where it's just too much, and they 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 realize how how dense and how complicated and how and how just. Uh, you know, frightening the, this, this material is. And everybody has their saturation point, you know. I have yet to really reach mine. Um, but I have a feeling after I get this book done that um, <laughs> I'm either going to, you know, unleash a Pandora, Pandora's box on uh, my ass or, or um, you know, get it out of my system to a certain degree. I think it might be the second one. I, th- I think you might... Uh... I think that most people just be kind of like, huh, when they read it, and that might be the end of it. Um, but, yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, or you might, you know, and on the other hand, you might get a couple of interesting phone calls or, or emails or uh, letters at some point. Yep, we'll see. I, I, mean, keep, I keep hoping uh, for those. I don't really get them. I've never been them. approached by anybody saying, hey, you know, careful, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree, you better watch what you're doing. I've never been scared off so um, oh i don't mean scared off i mean somebody with help like um as long as you don't mention who i am what could you maybe you know all somebody has to do is give you a name or a date or some a data point and you'll go in a completely you know direction you did not expect and you know probably nine times out of ten it doesn't really amount to anything but once in a while you i'm sure you've had that happen you'll just get this one little piece of information maybe anonymous that really opens something up yeah it's baby steps though with me it's only been that yellow helicopter incident that really had a profound uh life-changing sort of you know paradigm shifting impact on me and that was totally that was totally uh non-threatening it was more you know it was more invigorating it was more stimulating and challenging okay to get get, look at my reality totally differently to get people excited that thing it's it's you know it's bloody it's sweaty it's a lot of leg work it's a lot of groundwork and it's a lot of heavy lifting yeah Uh, at at the risk of of boring the hell out of you could you uh thumbnail that um helicopter incident because it's in the the first mysterious valley book isn't it yeah yeah it was my first uh, mutilation case i went out on um i was given a you know i just in a nutshell i had a new year's eve party december 31st 92 um you know i was a gigging musician so a couple of weekends prior to that i hadn't been around uh, actually about a month prior to that and uh, while I was out gigging somewhere uh, there was an amazing UFO incident that many people in my town saw and uh, you know I kind of heard rumblings about it but I hadn't really talked to anybody 
just for, you know, just a couple of asides and then through this party. And at one point in the party, everywhere I went, everybody was talking about it in little groups. So I, I said, hey, this would be a great, you know, article to write for my local paper. So I started researching the subject. And one of the first things I did was call the county sheriff. And, and he gave me a handful of photographs of mutilation reports that had been filed in the 70s and early 80s. And I was able to track down, you know, the ranches of, uh, that uh, had these cases, and the first ranch that I went out to uh, to talk to one of the ranchers, uh, they said, yeah, you know, the first week of June, 1980, we, we were having dinner, and, and we heard this helicopter fly right over our house, we thought, wow, that's kind of strange, you know, it was right at dusk, and, uh, and then about 20 minutes later, they heard it come back to them going the, the way that they had originally heard it, you know, come from, and so they ran outside, and this, you know, it's antique, you know, 1950 kind of whirlybird helicopter with mustard yellow flew right over their house and it appeared to have come right out of their field about a mile away and and they thought wow that's really weird you know an unmarked yellow helicopter how often you see one of those especially one you know with with you know the old out the external gas tanks like a whirlybird off mash or something and they went out the next morning uh, to check on the on the livestock on where they thought the thing had, had possibly landed and they found their bull mutilated so they called around to all the airports and mechanics and rental places and anybody had anything to do with, with aviation in the, in the whole you know southern part of the state, northern New Mexico, and they could not find anybody who knew where this antique helicopter could have come from. So I go out there, you know, 13 years later to interview the family, and uh, they tell me the story, and you know, I think, wow, that's kind of weird. And I say, hey, take me out there. And so they took me out there, and there was this thing 13 years later, late, you know, the skeleton lying there. I grabbed the head and took the skull. And uh, so I went home. And uh, next morning I was sitting at the table typing up my notes, and I heard the thump, 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 and I looked up, and there's this antique yellow helicopter flew, you know, 500 feet right over my house. <laughs> so uh, that, that definitely, uh, you know, yeah, I, I definitely kissed the tar baby on that one. Uh, that that totally gasped <laughs> me. And I, it really kept me going for years. So this and that, was, that was really what, and this was years after they saw they'd seen thirteen this, years. Yeah, after this had happened. Yep. And the next, well, within a few days, the same helicopter appears over here. <laughs> no, the following morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> As I was typing my notes up from the interview. <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 I mean, how dramatic do you want it? You know? yeah. <laughs> I was hooked, man. From then on, I you know, I, I they set the hook, and then I've been flopping on the end of the line ever since. Yeah, but at some point, you think that things choose you, you know, and then you just kind of you're along for the ride, and and sometimes the ride teaches you things, and other times it scares you, and other times it makes you happy, and it helps you meet people, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, well, whatever, I'm just whatever that ride curious. is. That that just definitely hooked me. I mean, I, I just. That blew my mind. I mean, that's probably yeah. one of the most mind-blowing things that's ever happened to me, and I've had a lot of mind-blowing things happen over the years. Okay, I, I promised uh, the, the people listening that we wouldn't talk about cattle mutilations, or as you say, and probably better, unexplained uh, livestock deaths. Yeah, unexplained livestock deaths, yeah. yeah. Because Chris is the one to talk about. Because when you're on for the, when, when the book comes out, obviously you'll be on again, and we'll really get even more in depth on this, yeah. among other things. The subtitle is "Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation History." <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> who yeah. made you say? Uh -huh. Who made you call it that? <laughs> uh, I had to come up with a subtitle, and, and David wanted 
cattle mutilation in it, and I, yeah. I really fought him on it. And so I said, well, how about if we try to unravel the mystery? So, well, you have to engage. Uh, sorry, I haven't got much sleep in the last few days. You have to engage in a certain amount of um, showmanship, bombast, and uh, uh, whatever you want to call it to get people to read the book. Um, well, it, it went up to 17000 on Amazon, and the thing hadn't even been having a quarter written yet when they announced it. So I guess there is going to be a market for it. But I'm not doing this because I, I want to be rich and famous. I'm doing it because I've been researching this subject for 20 years, and and I really feel I'm kind of uniquely positioned to, to possibly well, be objective enough to actually you know present the material in a way that I feel it should be presented. Well, I would hope so. I. Uh, you know, the, a very strange thing I thought when I was driving around today thinking about what am I going to ask Chris? And the one thing I want to ask you that, that came out of that little thought process was how is, you know, your the way you live and what you deal with and how you do what you do worth it to you? What what keeps you going as a I researcher, a mu- it, musician, it, all this stuff? Is it a sense of freedom? Or, I, you know, I'm just who knows? It, it, eternally curious. And, you know, this is a social suicide to even profess an interest in the subject. So, you know, part of me is like, you know, socially insane to even get involved in UFOs and paranormal stuff and yeah. all that. But, you know, having seen and investigated, you know, around 200 of these cases personally, I mean, it's, it's, it's just... You know, it's why do people read Agatha Christie novels? <laughs> why, do, why do people, you know, like to read mystery novels? It, it's like, to me, it's the ultimate ultimate mystery. I mean, it, it ties into some deep primordial things within the collective human uh, consciousness. And, and and there's there's operative uh, forces and deep-rooted uh, energies that, for lack of a better term, there's, there's just a connection to something primordial here that... that uh, is blistering the modern age with this particular mystery. And I, you know, I think uh, after you've done the amount of research into it that I have, uh, you, you want to at least come, come to a place of at least being able to, you know, remind yourself that even though you maybe don't know the ultimate answer, you're a hell of a lot closer than anybody else is. And, and I, I really think that I am, so that's why I'm doing it. Uh, how's, how's the Paracast going? Oh, good, good. Yeah, we're plugging along. You know, we just had Kevin Randall uh-huh. on talking about. Uh, of course, Kevin is like, all oh, these are all misidentified scavengers. And I said, well, have you read the NIDS paper? Um, have you read any of the the you know scientific data that that does say that there's something un- unnatural going on here? Well, no, it's all been debunked. And it's like, well, obviously you made up your mind uh, 30 years ago, and yeah. you know it's set in stone, and you have no more compulsion to, to even entertain it as being a real mystery. So, you know, I mean, that's the way a lot of people are about the paranormal, I think. Uh, the scientific community, you know, thought that Project Blue Book explained UFOs and, you know, Roswell case closed, uh, you know, for instance, uh, was the ultimate answer behind the Roswell incident. And, yeah. You know, like, like, Oswald was the lone gunman, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, certain people, you know, once they hear what they need to hear, they can... They can just set it aside in their mind and, and go on to uh, things that are more relevant to them in their everyday life. Well, it, it doesn't matter as long as they're not somebody that's evangelical about it, because then, then you get to the point of looking stupid, because people that are, know what's going on realize that you're ignoring vast swaths of the data to fit to cram into your 
whatever your idea is. You don't want if you don't really want to change anybody's idea about it, and you don't want to argue for hours on end about it. Then that's fine. I don't care. You know, really, nobody should care if you made up your mind on something. You disagree with them, but who cares? Yeah. But it's the people that are like I don't know if it's a willfully ignorant or what, but and I'm not including Kevin Randall in this at all. But the, the people that are have their minds so made up. And like, let's see, like any any uh, like hardcore UFO researcher or hardcore, um, you know, fundamentalist type skeptic, they're the same kind of annoying person you learn nothing from. To me, yeah, exactly. You know, they they've made it up, uh, made up their own minds, and so who are you to come and and suggest that they're not looking at at the entire body of evidence? Yeah, and with the, any of this paranormal stuff. Any and you know this. Any theory that anybody has is invalidated by huge amounts of data that that uh, they want to ignore. Any theory, exactly. <laughs> exactly. probably yeah, even probably no even yours, mine certainly. But but yeah, it's I agree, uh, totally. huh? Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's the way. That's kind of human nature, you know. The only way you could do justice to the subject is not to be dogmatic about it. It's, it seems to scream for that. It almost demands it out of you. It's one of the reasons I think you and I both like the subject so much. Yeah, well, it's constantly, uh, you know, constantly challenging, and, and definitely as soon as you think you know, uh, you know even more so that you don't know. So yeah. like a three-steps-forward, uh, two-steps-back scenario. I do feel that I'm making headway, but it's, you know... If I had known 20 years ago what I was getting into, believe me, I wouldn't have gotten into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you're a different person than you were then. The the, the study and yeah, the, and the subject true. has changed you. If I if that yellow helicopter had shocked me out of my uh, my reality view and, and shifted my, my thinking uh, to the extent that it did, um, if I had been out investigating, like, some uh, white beating or, or some... Uh, you know, arson fire or something, it would have been a different thing. I was out investigating my first cattle mutilation case, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of hard to ignore the uh, universe uh, sending me a pretty blatant uh, kick in the pants. Yeah, Gi- giant uh, si- neon sign with sirens around it with your name and arrows pointing at it. So. <laughs> yeah. Funny who's, how it works. Who's the... Okay, who's your favorite person you've had on the Paracast? I at least okay, not your favorite. Who have you learned the most from on your interviews? That's a tough one. Uh, there have been so many people that have really. Uh, okay, for example, I mean something that just sticks out. Well, you know Philip Hoyle when he came on, I had no idea the extent of uh, of the the sheet uh, mysterious sheet depth in, in Wales. And I had no idea uh, the body of evidence that they amassed. Uh, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, uh, you, you know, I, it's, it's really tough. Some of Jim Mosley's stories, I think, were some of the most fascinating. Some of his uh, escapades with Gray Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, God, there have been so many. I don't know. It, it, that's a tough one, Greg. I mean, anytime you're on, Nick's on, I always learn something um, from my favorite guests. But, um, you know, I'm pretty well read and pretty up to speed on, you know, most of the work uh, of people that have been on the show. And, and so there's never really been these, these like, totally mind-blowing moments, although I'm sure if I go down through the list, I could probably, <laughs> after, you know, close to yeah. 200 shows, I could, I could probably pull a few out. But, you know, there's, there have been some memorable ones. I mean, it was a real thrill for me to interview Jacques Vallée and... And uh, 
you know, having George Knapp on a couple of times, he had some pretty mind blowing stuff about the uh, the Sherman Ranch case, and and uh, you know, there's there's been uh, there's been some some really cool moments, that's for sure. Okay, well, conversely, you know what's coming next? Who did you just, who do you remember as an idiot that you wanted to punch, or maybe just a bad interview? <laughs> Oh wow! There's been a few of those, uh, and I'm sure it was obvious. Guy that we had on him about a month and a half ago. This uh, third phase of Moon Yahoo. Oh man, I wanted to bitch slap him now back into uh, into the hole that he crawled from. Third of phase of have, Moon. What do you? Know, what is that? For willful um, promulgators of of pop culture, you know, BS uh, thinking. Um, those types of folks um, generally <laughs> drive me up the wall. You know, the people that don't know their ass from a hole in the ground and present uh, hoaxes and, you know, no matter how good good or bad they are, present them with the same gravitas as uh, some amazing stuff, you know, and just muddy the waters. Those types of folks really, they, they just drive me up the wall. The ones that, uh, you know, are misprogramming the culture to believe um, in all the stuff that gets in the way of real, I think, uh, accurate in-depth research and investigation. Yeah. What do you, third phase of Moon guy? What is that? What, what did he talk about? Uh, well, third phase of Moon is this huge juggernaut on, on YouTube that gets millions of hits and has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And it's... Oh, geez, I don't even know about it. Every week they come up with some... You know, the latest CGI hoax, uh, photoshopped photographs, and just, I mean, some of the, the quality of some of the, the footage is just laughable. There are, out of the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of videos that they posted over the last couple of years, there are some pretty interesting uh, visual, there is some interesting visual evidence, but it's like a fraction of, of what's up there. Most of it's just, just you know, aliens being dragged behind cars saying, oh, my God, I'm being chased by an alien. Just ridiculous stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it, he and his brother, his twin brother, I think, are actually, uh, you know, they're, they're um, video professionals, and I think they're, you know, they're coming up with some pretty impressive-looking stuff if you don't know what you're looking at. But, I mean, there's some diagnostic uh, propulsion uh, elements that, that need to be present uh, in order for me to sign off on any sort of footage. And, and I've been trained by one of the best in the biz, Ray Stanford, what to look for. And and very, very little of what they post up there, uh, I feel, has any sort of legitimacy at all. Um, whether it's, you know, people trying to, you know, film Chinese lanterns or, you know, remote piloted planes with little blinking lights on them. And, I mean, you know, you can tell, you can see through most of, if not all of this stuff, with very few exceptions. And and for them to present it with the same gravitas as, as potentially a, a legitimate piece of visual evidence, to me, is doing the, the, the field a great disservice. And it's one of the things that, that you know, has maintained this uh, plausible deniability and this giggle factor in the media and stuff. And, and those are the type of people that, to me, are just really, they're worse than, then people that just sit back and take pot shots are actually creating a real uh, presence as as being part of the problem, and, and that to me really, really kind of gets gets me going. Have you seen Ray Stanford's films? I've seen many, many uh, 
long portions of them. Yeah, I've never had them sit down with a you know an eight millimeter projector and, and display them, but I've seen hundreds and hundreds of still frames, many in sequence. Um, when I was out in D.C. for the citizens' hearing, I spent 14 hours with him, and we didn't even get through the, his entire presentation. He's he's really on to some stuff. He's come up with some amazing amazing an, an analysis and evidence that um, is is breathtaking. It's light years beyond anything that I've ever seen or heard about in the field. Well, what do you Because he doesn't present himself, at least in from what I can tell, as as somebody that is. I don't know. He he's not a good promoter of himself. He Meaning, doesn't doesn't try. He, uh, I don't promote myself. No, no, <laughs> no. Know? I mean. If he wants somebody to take him like a a somebody to take him seriously, he does. To me, he doesn't present himself as that. He he doesn't seem as careful as I think he should be. Meaning, let's be real careful about what we say, and then blow you away with what we show you. If that's what if that's what's what, what's yeah, but there. See, he he doesn't think that that the public really has a need to know or is is even close to being up to speed enough to even understand the scientific uh, information that he's gleaning from these films and, 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 and the visual evidence. Um, you know, he, his, his whole process is geared to, to top-shelf uh, scientists. Um, he doesn't care what the public thinks. He does not have any... He's not, um, he's not motivated at all um, by any potential notoriety or fame or fortune. That's not why he's doing it. He's trying to move humankind's uh, level oh, I, I didn't of think knowledge. He, yeah, I, don't, I don't think he's a promote, a self-promoter or anything. I, nothing to do with that. Um, has he had anybody come out and look at the... I, I guess he has. Somebody yes, qualified yes. People. And what do they yeah, do with I it? Could, I could name some names that would uh, <laughs> ring some bells out there, but yeah. I'm not allowed to do so. Um, I understand, but what, what what do those people do? They just look at it and walk away, or what? Well, one physicist thanked him for helping him solve a, a niggling problem that he'd been working on for years, a question that had been open in his mind, and he didn't know how to approach it, and Ray gave him gave him the perfect uh, uh, insight that allowed him to have a major breakthrough in his own work, and we're talking about someone that's quite quite well-known. Uh-huh. When I've seen the email, you know, the yeah. thank you email. Yeah. I understand. Well, at some point, I would really like to sit down with him and watch that stuff, at least some of it. Not it's amazing. That, He's come up not with that some I'm a, uh, you know, amazing I, insights uh, based on his work. He thinks that we're dealing with something that is being is able to manipulate and compress time. He's come up with predictability, and, and um, he's replicated uh, some very interesting ghost imaging that is present in real uh, footage and real mm-hmm. photographs. Um, that indicate some sort of quantum ability to compress time. And uh, he's come up with very discernible shapes that don't have anything to do with the Dansky or Billy Meyer beam ships. <laughs> um, these objects are much different than the pop culture view of them is. Um, we're not dealing with hubcaps or frisbees. We're dealing with most, but very few of these objects are actually saucers. Most of them are, are actually... Um, cigar-shaped um, or uh, very long and skinny, narrow, like pencils. Um, he's demonstrated that um, there seems to be a very consistent um, type of craft that um, has very consistent craft within it, and those crafts shoot off smaller craft, and they're all, they're all um, fairly 
predictable in terms of their their actual visual the visual evidence of them. Mm. And uh, he's just time and time and time again he showed me examples of of this repeatability and duplicating his you know hypothesis and being being shown the you know, sh- showing the evidence that, that uh, shows repeatability and duplication of the of the uh, of his analysis. Yeah, that's very exciting to me. Well, see, I trust your eye because you know about you know how how you know, effects are made or how things are faked, and a lot of its stuff is so old it, it'd be very hard to fake it without it being pretty obvious to somebody like you. So, well, we're talking yeah, eight and super eight millimeter, and in, in a couple cases, sixteen millimeter um, analog film. Yeah, and you know when you see frame numbers and no, no, I don't think he faked it. I, I'm not saying that, but it, it's just... well, it's it's his 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 material precludes any sort of photoshopping or CGI right, or right. anything like that because it's it's you know from the 50s and 60s and yeah. 70s. So. Yeah. Okay, I, I, it would be nice if he could. Well, like you said, it, it, he doesn't care. Well, he just turned 75, and he told me yesterday that he's definitely uh, feeling like he needs to get on his hobby horse and present this, uh, you know, to. Like a Bigelow or somebody with some dough that can really jumpstart uh, some propulsion diagnostic work and, and you know cutting edge uh, scientific work. That's that's who he's interested in in approaching. He doesn't give a flying shit, a flying whatever about what <laughs> anybody in the public thinks. He doesn't even think most of us, if not a majority of us, even have a need to know. You know, he's a bit of a curmudgeon. He's been on your show twice. I think you and Walter discovered that. What? <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a bit of a curmudgeon, man. He's time's a waste, and he, he doesn't. Yeah, you know, he's he's just not not a guy. You well, want you know to what? I out, I uh, can see his attitude because <laughs> yeah, we're both getting older, and I can see that too. It's uh, sometimes you get to the point where it's like, you know, how much I have to explain to you before we could get on about what I've gone through before we could talk about this without you thinking I sound stupid. You know exactly, I mean? exactly. And he doesn't want to, you know, he. He gets exasperated uh, very easily. He doesn't get out much. He's 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 in a in a, a really rarefied realm. He has a level of observational acuity that exists maybe in one in several million people. I mean, the guy can walk on ground that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have walked on the same ground and not seen these dinosaur tracks everywhere. And he he has that eye. He has that ability to discern his his environment or to discern visual evidence and yeah. ascertain what it is and what it means and, and how it got there. And, and very, very few people on the planet have that ability, and he's one of them. No question in my mind. Whatever he's ha- in a class all by himself in that regard. Whatever happened to his brother? Rex. His brother retired, uh, you know, professor, you know, the chair of the psychology department at, uh, I think, what, the St. John's. I mean, he was... Yeah. Head of the Parapsychology Society for years with Stanley Krippner. Yeah. Um, and finally retired, and it's totally, you know, he's totally in denial about all the stuff that he and his brother shared when they were kids. I mean, he's just been in such fear over that information impacting his professional career that <laughs> he's just totally gone, you know, the opposite direction, complete denial of, of all of it. Which is kind of frightening. I think the reason why he became a parapsychologist is because his identical twin was incredibly psychic, and he wasn't. He he spent his life trying to figure out why. (laughs) Yeah, usually it's between the two. Um, Yeah. I I interviewed, uh, for the magazine, I interviewed Joe McMonagall. He said his sister had it, too, when they were kids, but it it basically got... um, 
acclimatized out of her by people telling her to cut it out. Right. Yeah. Well, your environment can really have an adverse effect on those abilities. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're conditioned not to uh, pay attention. No. And if you're lucky, you can stay out of that, you know, and, and just kind of well, shut Ray up, was, internalize know, it and shut up about it. Well, Ray was in that regard, and, and he's always had a real sense of his, his special pair of glasses that he has on, and he's nurtured it and and uh, been able to apply it in, in ways that are just uh, jaw-dropping. Yeah. I mean, his, his ichnology work, you know, is that he's discovered more dinosaur tracks than any other living human. He's discovered, you know, four species of dinosaurs. Yeah. First person to ever find an articulated dinosaur cast on the entire East Coast. He's rewritten East Coast dinosaur paleontology single-handedly. And those are the trackways on the ground. His real passion are the trackways in the sky. The dinosaur stuff is just a hobby he does when he goes out walking. Mm-hmm. The, the, his AAO or anomalous aerial object work—that's his true passion, and that's where he's really gonna—he's gonna—he's shining, <laughs> big time. Is there anybody that like really? I mean, I guess I keep—I ask this of everybody, but maybe we can open that one up. Is there anybody that just has really affected the way you do things, and not necessarily a UFO researcher or something like that? Like your, well, yeah, David Perkins, uh, in terms of really being a top-notch, you know, thinker and analyst and, and you know, his creative out-of-the-box thinking, he's really, you know, he's been my, my mentor for 20 years. And, you know, in, 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 in the realm of actual creative thinking, David Perkins, definitely. Um, Tom Adams, early on, those first 10 years, yeah. really taught me how to research properly. Linda Howe. Uh, you know, bless her heart. She took me under her wing for a number of years, so two or three years, and and really showed me the proper ways to go out and conduct interviews. How to how to uh, you know go out and ascertain facts from from witnesses and and to actually do field investigative work. I I, I will always thank her for that. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée, John Keel. I mean, very important in my process in terms of of really looking at. Had stuff with a with a different pair of glasses on, and and coming up with uh, with some real mind blowing uh, creative thinking. Um, you know, uh, these are the the people I think that have had the the, the the largest and most lasting influence. My brother is another one. I mean, he's not a researcher. He's not really an investigator, but he can look at a set of facts and come up with a, a spot on analysis that uh, really br- brings in the whole idea of, of religious belief and cultural front-loading and, and mm. uh, the way that we tend to organize data in our minds and how our reality um, tends to uh, to kind of unfold itself in, in predictable patterns. Uh, he's been very instrumental in, in a lot of my thinking, especially when it comes to uh, the Western esoteric tradition and, and uh, cult or cult-tinged things. Really? Because we've talked about this before, but how does the uh, the Western occult tradition inform your like your paranormal work? I mean, I know it really informed mine, especially early on, and I suppose it still does, but how did, how did it affect you? Well, you know, I had extensive training uh, in, you know, the Western, you know, sort of Golden Dawn uh, system of, of magic and, and ritual, and and, you know, I... I've been exposed to, you know, to, you know, that sort of ritual occult knowledge uh, since I was very young. Uh, 
it hasn't really, you know, I, I'm not sitting here with a, you know, with a with a hood and a, a yeah. sword doing ritual magic in my, <laughs> my house by any stretch. But uh, but I'm aware of all that, and I'm aware of the the the, the role that that organized systematic belief has played all throughout history, and how powerful particular belief of uh, systems and ritual can be. And you know, it's always been something that has has been kind of a sounding board for a lot of the stuff uh, that I've investigated over the last 20 years. Um, I, I feel strongly that there's a, a, a deep connection to ritual occult magic in, in uh, the cattle mutilation phenomenon. Right? Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I and not 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 uh, in a way I don't that we're believe very often, but I do believe that there is a connection to to ritual magic and uh, in an aspect of this mystery, just uh, an aspect of it. I think yeah. that there's ritual, uh, a ritual a process at work. I think it ties in with man, uh, humankind's uh, sacrifice of animals for thousands yeah. of years. I think there's a reason why we sacrifice animals to the gods, and and I think that that there's an aspect of that of that ritual act that's tied into all this. Uh, there has to be, uh, to me. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a matter of, of really assigning blame, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, or assigning, you know, or coming up with uh, the rationale to explain some sort of occult agenda. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's always been something that, that I've always had as part of my, my toolkit. Um, you know, I, I have a sense that there's, there's tremendous power within the culture and, and, and manipulating belief. I think all of this is high magic, and and uh, the government is is very adept at at, uh, at ritual. Um, you know, the, the founding fathers were you know tremendously involved with uh, uh, the secret uh, sort of occult traditions and and aspects of their behavior. Um, I think um, we, all you have to do is just walk around, look at a map of Washington D.C., and walk around and see some of the monuments and stuff. I mean, that's high magic that you're looking at, um, no doubt in my mind. So, I, I'm not saying that it's it's particularly, uh, you know, the end-all, be-all rationale to explain this stuff in any way, shape, or form. But it's definitely an aspect that needs to be addressed and needs to be considered. Yeah. Hey, you're about to be. Uh... Last uh, show, I didn't have any sirens. Here's some coming right now. So this is going to be an official Radio Mysterioso uh, siren check here in about uh, ten seconds. <laughs> when you s- now, it, it's funny when you say, "I think." That- oh, here they come! <laughs> All right, I guess I rate. There, subjects bring out the uh, the sirens around that place. I can tell. See, right when you mention occult ritual magic, then all the sirens come by. <laughs> the thing is, when you say that, when when you say, I think there's an a, aspect of this involved in the mutilation phenomenon, and not causing it, but uh, all of it, but there's an aspect of it. The first thing people think is people standing around with hoods on, a bunch of, you know, uh, addle-headed um, uh, uh, speed freak Satanists. And that that's not what you're talking about. I know that's not what you're talking about. What are Although you that about? aspect is is involved, I yes, mean, of course. The closest, uh, the closest we came to an actual uh, arrest and conviction of a perpetrator of a mutilation, I think, happened in Montana, where they were about ready to charge a guy. It was because of 
of this wannabe sort of, you know, impress my girlfriend. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a Charlie Manson in, in training. Uh, let me go out and, uh, <laughs> you know, gather some bloody parts to impress my girlfriend. That type of, you know, banal sort of, uh, yeah. sort of neighborhood kid, uh, you know, pretending to be a black magician type stuff. I, I mean, there's an element of that in this. And, uh, you know, what was the name? The Flickinger guy. What was his name? The guy, the, the prisoner in the Midwest, I think Texas or someplace, Oklahoma, they claimed he knew that there was a, you know, ritualized uh, group that was going around gathering parts. Well, uh, the, I, the I remember hearing thing about that. that I found, and I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, Greg. Um, there was an article that came out in the San Francisco uh, Guardian in 76. It was written by a guy named um, Burton Wolf. And... Um, Basically, what it was was he says, "Oh, I figured out uh, what the calumniations are." It was this guy named Dan Fry, uh, not Daniel Fry, the famous contactee from LA. <laughs> it was a guy named Dan Fry, and he had a he had a Minnesota radio program called Cosmic Age. And uh, according to this article that Wolf wrote, he said one of his shows uh, in I think it was seventy four, seventy five, or, or possibly late seventy three, early seventy four. On one of his shows, he came up with this, this uh, an aside during the show saying, "Oh, these weird. We've been seeing stories about these cattle mutilations, and and um, it's either, you know, it's either Satanists or or it's um, UFO pilots." And so, uh, Wolf said, ah, "I figured it out. It was all started out as a joke, and it, it spun out of control. The media got involved, and and then the thing kind of just." you know, grew legs and, and, and just spiraled out of control. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And I did some research, tried to find about this Daniel Fry, and he did have a radio show. can find no mention of him ever doing a show on calibrations uh, in 73 or 74. Um, and I couldn't uh, find where he confessed that it was all a joke. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, and so I thought, well, why would this guy, Burton Wolf, why would he write this? You know, what did he have to gain from, from coming up with this assertion? So I did some research on the author of the article, Burton Wolf, and it turns out he wrote the introduction to Anton LaVey's what, Book of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so basically what I'm getting to is this guy, I came up with this story, I think, as a, a way to get the, the Satanists off the hook as being the possible, you know, perpetrators or... or you know, one of the suspects in, in some of the early mutilations in the upper Midwest. And uh, so I, I am finding some pretty interesting, very crucial, I think, um, you know, telling uh, bits of, of, of research and information about the very beginning of the wave of uh, cow cases in the, in the early 70s. Uh, another guy named Wayne Holland, who I interviewed many years ago, claimed he was involved with the government doing some of these cases, and it was his job to fill out the computer punch card uh, when they went out on these cases. And uh, this was all in the, you know, in 73, 74 in the upper Midwest. So, you know, I'm really concentrating on some key points in, in the history of this to find out how some of these pop culture misperceptions uh, grew legs and uh, became part of the, you know, part of the process. And uh, the Burton Wolf article, I think, is really telling. And I'm really surprised nobody's uncovered that little factoid. Is that available online to look at? Uh, 
you know, I, I have a request into the Guardian for a reprint of the original article. I found excerpts from the original Guardian article, but I have not been able to find any record of the Cosmic Age show where Burton Wolf claimed this Dan Fry guy first started the rumors of Satanists or UFOs being involved with cattle mutilations. Yeah, when did he? Because Flickinger was the name of the FBI guy. I think they had the. Yeah, did, that, yeah, yeah. Flickinger was the one that 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 was talking to the guy. I think uh, it was one of the inmate that that plea bargained his way out of out of a nasty charge by claiming he knew that Satanists were involved in in the mutilations, and it was some national Satanist movement or something. Uh, right. I don't have all my facts at my fingertips right here. I'm not at my desk, but. Um, but yeah, the more you dig, the more interesting stuff you uncover, and I think uh, you know if you throw enough against the wall, <laughs> some of it's going to start sticking. You know. Yeah, it's um, many many headed uh, uh, nastiness. What what um, caused you to re- how how did the cattle mutilation thing cause you to become interested in the trickster thing and write that book? Well, the helicopter event to me that was the ultimate trickster <laughs> yeah. experience. I mean that that. That's that's when that, that that's the incident that really set that particular seed uh, in my brain. Um, that and uh, of course George Hansen's book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, right. which I feel is a highly underrated and overlooked uh, yes. analysis of the paranormal and and it's the way it uh, the trickster sort of energy sort of ebbs and flows through culture and, and is very glaringly apparent when it comes to UFOs and and parapsychology and. And uh, public public perception and cultural belief around around those subjects that there's highly liminal uh, paradigm shifting uh, control structure shattering uh, element structurist uh, element that's involved with all this. Yeah. And I, I think you've had George on your show, haven't you? Who? George Hansen. No, I haven't. I probably should, shouldn't I? Oh yeah. Have yeah, you? He's, he's a powerhouse. Has he been on uh, Paracast? No, uh, I haven't been able to. Uh, <laughs> he's been invited, but he's he's a tough one to land. Really? Yeah, yeah well. he's been on. Uh, I think he's been on Paratopia a couple of times. I think Ritzman and Vaney have had him on. Huh. I, I recall. Well, I think in their archive they had at least one show with him. Yeah. David well, Kirkman knows him pretty yeah. well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, keep after him then. See if see if you can get him on. Yeah, um, and yeah. if if you do tell me, because that means he might be willing to come on this show too. Because mm-hmm. um, if you want to talk about you know, like overlooked books and the trickster thing, I I think you know that one. Yours um, certainly, um, uh, Brandon's book. Right, the rebirth of Pan. Rebirth of Pan, and then oh, yeah. strangely enough, People of the Web by Greg Little. Hmm, I haven't read that. One. Well, he's got people. He wrote. He wrote two books. I think one of them was People of the Web. I can't remember what the other one one is, but it's basically taking everything you talk about, Hanson. Talk, and this was written in the eighties, I believe. The books were written in the eighties. Yeah, I you think talk, I found the first use of the term calumulation. Really, really, where? Nineteen thirty-two, Charles Fort. <laughs> really, he, what did he, he say? Quotes, he says this is the first calumulation, and then he goes on and tells the story of a horse flasher. Kind of ring a bell. Yeah, sort of. It's a Hindi guy that was uh, convicted and actually charged and convicted and sentenced to uh, a series of uh, bizarre uh, cattle, horse, and sheep deaths in uh, 1912 in England. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle took up his case and helped uh, get his conviction overturned. 
by looking at the evidence and saying this, there's no way this Hindi lawyer, who actually was a clergyman as well, could have been responsible for the uh, the animal death. And uh, and that's a, the oldest uh, usage of the term cattle mutilation I can find. But then he goes on to talk about a horse flasher. <laughs> what the hell is a horse flasher? Somebody that flashes horses? Well, it's like, uh, you know, Snippy the horse is considered the first cattle mutilation. I, I just, I, I find there's a just an uncanny parallel there. <laughs> yes, true, yeah. <laughs> and we've talked about that. So, uh, it's been conclusively proven that Snippy was the name of the horse that was uh, found dead. Not, not It wasn't the daughter or, or son or whatever of Snippy the horse. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, there's some, I have the only um, full-length interview with the owner of the horse, and and he back uh, pedals on that. He says, "Well, we had to, you know, we named the colt, you know, we named the colt Snippy, but his real name, his, uh, you know, we named the, the Philly Snippy, but his real name was Lady. Uh, it, it, it just, <laughs> it's, it's like one of those things. You, you know, I, I go back and I look at the transcript. And I'm like, wait a minute. He, he's like, he's contradicting himself twice within the same sentence. You know." Yeah. Well, we had to name the filly something, or uh, they had to call the horse something, so uh, they called it Snippy, but the the Snippy was... Uh, a nickname. Was, no, Snippy was the, the father, and, and, and but the colt's name was, was Lady, and, and normally uh, it's not a colt, it's a filly, and he knew that. Yeah. So it's like he was playing with me, and at the time, it was my first full-length interview that I'd done in the field with a video camera. This was early, early on back in, you know, 20 years ago, and uh, I didn't pin him down, which I should have. But uh, there's still some question of whether Lady was actually the name of the horse. The, the horse may have been named Snippy, and it may have been a male. Really early on, I had a, a blog before I had any other blog. I started, I'd start one. It was called The Excluded Middle because of the magazine. Right, of course. I have a copy of the anthology. Yeah, and the um, this is after the magazine and before... You know uh, this show or whatever. Anyway, it was early two thousands, I had a, and it's still up there somewhere. But there were people. I wrote something about the name game and about uh, you know people's names and the, the thing that Lauren Coleman wrote about and other people have written about just the people's names and how they attract weirdness. Um, right. And I found out that Snippy's bones had been owned by somebody named Doty for a while. No relation to Richard Doty. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He was a veterinarian. Yeah. You know, I actually saw Snippy's bones are articulated and uh and are and were redisplayed publicly and about four years ago I actually got a chance to really closely examine the carcass and guess what I found? What? I found tissue on the neck. <laughs> I found tissue in between vertebrae. I mean the thing hadn't been, you know, vacuum cleaner clean like everybody claims. I found tissue. So would there be maybe some residue of something that was injected in or spread around that carcass? No, it was connective tissue between the neck vertebrae. No, but I mean, if there's tissue left, could there be traces? Because when you hear about that, people say that there was something on the ground, something that made their fingers tingle, and this has come up in different mutilation cases after this. But do you yeah, think well, that was uh, like it looked like a chicken liver that they found uh, on a nearby chico bush that uh, had some green kind of ooze in it. And when Nellie touched it, she got a like an acid burn on her hand. Oh, okay, so there wasn't any weirdness associated with the at least physically besides the actual mutilation stuff with the with the horse's uh, carcass. Well, the, the bones were bleached, uh, you know, bright white. 
um, and it's impossible to duplicate that, you know, overnight. And then after it had sat there for a couple of weeks, then the bones turned pink, which is very weird. If you see the the famous color photograph looking down at the horse, you'll notice that the, the bones have a rosy color to them, yeah, which is very unnatural. Well, and what I was saying, you said you found connective tissue. Is there any way that could be analyzed? Uh, probably. Um, like spectrographic? I mean, it was obvious to me that it was, uh, you know, the remaining parts of, of, of connective tissue between the, um, uh, you know, the discs between the vertebrae, uh, about halfway up the neck. Yeah. And there were a couple other little pieces, too. Of course, I, you know, I, I didn't want to start chipping away at it and stuff with a... You know, no. You could ask, I suppose, and just say, "Look." Well, I mean, the guy that owned it was not the easiest guy to to deal with. He was trying to get, you know, fifty thousand uh, dollars. Oh, I see. To seek permission is to and seek I, denial. I had to talk my way to even get in to see it. Yeah. Yeah. To seek permission is to seek denial. It happens in a lot of cases. Well, he put <laughs> it up on eBay, and his, his uh, the highest bid was eighteen hundred, and I was kind of joked. I thought it was some rich Japanese guy that wanted it for his uh, tie, for his tie rack, <laughs> or so lawn it, ornament, or something. So they never saw. He never sold it. No, I don't think so. And well, would you buy a, a skeleton of a famous mutilated horse? I, you know, the uh, reserve on it was fifty thousand. Yeah, well, for eighteen hundred, I might. <laughs> I might actually do it. I don't know where I keep the conversation piece. Right? Yeah. <laughs> What the hey, hell is that thing? Check out my newest acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> See, I've got the you know I've got a uh, little statue of a bat. I've got uh, this yarn Weishaul yarn painting that's very beautiful. I've got all these kachinas, and I've got Snippy the horse's skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, I grabbed the skull of the first cattle case that went on the yellow helicopter case, and I ended up painting it. It's hanging on the house here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's there with you. Yeah, it's that yellow cow skull on the house here. Oh, I gotta I gotta take a better look at it next time I come by to visit. Last time I saw you, I think was like what? Out there was like uh, probably it's been four about years. Three ago. years, I think. Three or four years, yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, come out anytime, man. <laughs> Maybe I'll do it when it cools down. <laughs> when it's yeah, like, of course, you know what color do you think I painted the cow skull? Uh, mutilation uh, pink. No, I don't know. You said yellow, yellow because of the helicopter. Yes, of course. <laughs> did you just paint it paint it plain yellow, or did you paint it like a uh, art piece? Well, it's like you know mustard yellow. It's like baby shit yellow. Yeah, it was a, a UFO on its forehead shooting down a red lightning bolt down its nose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a um, a concert poster by an artist named Frank Kozik, who some people might know about. It's for a band called Supernova that I like. Um, I don't even think they're together anymore. But it's it, there's a whole you know there's been a whole industry for a long time of creating posters for bands and you know for shows and then they sell those oh, yeah. as limited editions. So I have one of um, uh, for a band called Supernova. But what it is is like uh, a barn and a cow and uh, about two or three UFOs in the middle of the night zapping the cows, and there's an alien with its arm over the neck of one of the cows, and the cows has little X's over its eyes and its tongue sticking out. 
and then there's a couple of chickens in the fr- in the uh, in the foreground running around in the yard, and they've got six legs, and and they look all worried. Anyway, it's <laughs> I really like that piece of artwork. Maybe I'll you post it. Point that out to me next time I'm there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds right down my alley. Hey, yeah. I almost got a copy of Adam Hart Mother signed by all four members of the band. Because <laughs> it does have that cow on it. Yeah, that's why I wanted to give it to Izzy for his birthday. <laughs> I, I put two hundred fifty bucks on it as a bid, and somebody beat me by fifty bucks. Oh man! Bummed. Yeah, is I, that I forgot what... to check back. I would have topped it, but is that what that vinyl is going for? Original pressing, I guess. Well, signed by all four members of the band. Oh, it was signed. Okay, okay. I thought yeah. you said you were going to get oh, yeah. it. It was signed. Okay. Well, that, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I I think I may still have that album somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's a classic. Uh, Pink Forgettable, Floyd. Forgettable, but it's a classic cover. Definitely. Yeah, it's I, when I first bought it, I was like in junior high school. I took it home and listened to it once, and then <laughs> I never listened to it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a real Pink Floyd fan, so I listened to it twice. <laughs> well, I was too, but then you know, I listened to well. Strangely enough, since we've been talking, I listened to Animals a lot. I listened to that one. I used to do this thing. Hi, I used to do this thing in junior high. And part of high school, I listened to one album every night for a year. Oh, and my I, God. I did that with Animals. I did that with... I just uh, listened to Animals three or four times last week, uh, yeah. interestingly enough. I hadn't heard it in years. Yeah. Very underrated album. I love it. Yeah, I got I to I gotta listen to it again. And um, the only other one I remember doing that with was Paul McCartney's uh, Ram. I listened to that every night for a year. Strange. Uh-huh. And we're so sorry, Uncle Albert. What? We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. Yes. The fun, well, I'd have it on my dad's KLH stereo that we moved into my room, and uh, I would just listen to one side of it one night because I'd go to sleep in the middle of it, and then the, the, the next night I'd listen to the other side, and I just kept doing that every night. I don't know why, and then I would at some point get tired of it after a year or so and switch to another album. Really strange. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm insane. It's funny. I did that with Terrence McKenna. uh uh, talks for about three years. I would listen to a Terrence McKenna lecture every night. <laughs> I did that with McKenna. I did that very heavily with Alan Watts for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and then I went through a, like a three or four year period where I listened to Gene Shepard radio shows every night. Oh, wow. I had a blast it, it, in the past. Yeah. I mean, I, I people ask, like, what. Who do you, well, if they would ask, who influences you? And Gene Shepard's like a heavy influence on me. Long John yeah. Neville, Gene Shepard, Art Bell, um, and some lesser-known uh, L.A. area radio hosts that are, are, are really huge fans of. Yeah. Yeah, I was a Long John fan, I remember. Yeah, you were an East Coaster. In, uh, the early 70s, visiting my sister and brother-in-law. Um, I loved listening to staying up late and listening mm-hmm. to Long John. The funny thing is, they were both on WR for a while, him and Gene Shepard, and they were on, one was on before the other. Right. And then a couple times, Nebel interviewed Gene Shepard. Yeah. Which was yeah, really strange. Yeah, Ray Stanford was on that show a few times. And, uh, of course, Jim Mosley was one of the panelists there yeah. for, off and on for years. And I remember, jeez, uh, I think uh, Peter Gersten was on there with Alan Hynek uh, at one point. I think wow. maybe Larry Bryant or something early on when cause first got started uh-huh wow i mean it's funny i think of that show as like a bunch of contactees and you know psychics and people like that you don't think of people like peter gersten 
for, mm-hmm. to me being on the Long John Neville show, but they were. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Ray was on, I think, uh, a number of times. In fact, Ray, I think, flipped out and stormed out of the control room <laughs> on one, one appearance. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's because Neville was, he is very, he is very obvious in his his um, disbelief of things. Yes, and if was. you could, and, if you could handle that, was quite uh, helpful in that regard too. Yeah, I mean, and if you could handle that, and you you know wanted to push your thing, and either didn't care what he said or had a sense of humor about it, they were great shows. Yeah, but Ray Ray has none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, but yeah, it was it was. Uh, you know, the, you if people are interested, they can find old Long John Nibble shows on sure. oh, uh, yeah. online oh, in a lot of places. They're they're fascinating to listen to. You just l- listen to them and you realize that, you know, I, it's Long John Nibble's personality in that. But you know what what the Paracast is doing and what 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 uh, Coast to Coast is doing and all that. None of that's new. That's been going on since who knows? And there's probably even a person before Nibble that did that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they had Beckley on, I think. Frank Edwards and uh, Ray Fowler. I mean, they did have some fairly uh, interesting folks on there uh, from time to time, along with the uh, the tinfoil hat guy from Long Island and some of the comedic relief. The Mystic so, Barber like of Art Brooklyn. Bell, he'd have some really good guests on, and then he'd have Ed Dames on three times in a row. And... Yeah. <laughs> now, that was uh, Andy Sinatra, the Mystic Barber of Brooklyn, was the guy. Who right, the... the Mystic Barber. Yeah, that was the guy. Oh, <laughs> Mosley actually wrote him up in an issue of Saucer, uh, Saucer News, I think, at one because I had heard about him on from somewhere, maybe on Neville's show, and then I got a copy of that Jim Mosley's book of Saucer News, and there's a reprint of an article on on Sinatra, and what it, there's a picture of him standing in front of the uh, in, in front of the United Nations with his tinfoil hat on, waving his arms around, <laughs> and it literally was, I think, a tinfoil hat. Yeah. Oh no, he he was very proud of it too. <laughs> I one time did a lecture they they wanted me to do a lecture at an art museum about UFOs and all I talked about it was why I liked it so much and I talked about the Mystic Barber and played some of this stupid music <laughs> along with some weird sci-fi Japanese uh, sci-fi music no I don't know if I played any of that I just, you know the uh, pray to the lord if you see those flying saucers song and probably some contactee music or whatever, but just all the stuff that makes me really happy that I think, you know, and I described the V.S. Boas case and just all the, all the weird, strange, fun stuff that really, I probably, you and I both first encountered when we were kids and said, I can't believe this stuff even goes on. This is real. Yeah. This is wonderful. This, I being, I'm being told this is all fake, so it, it must be cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're, you've got quite a storehouse of, uh, of knowledge about some of the, the stranger aspects of the, uh, of the history of all this stuff. I, well, I think anybody that's been into it for a while has that. I'm sure you have it. What's your favorite weird UFO story? We've got like eight minutes left. Favorite weird UFO story? Hmm. That's not one of yours. Yeah, that's a, gosh, there's so many. Um, or paranormal. No, uh, I love the one. Where was it? New Guinea or someplace in the 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 the, the Padre? Some pre- William the William Gill case. Yeah, that's a that's always really intrigued me. That's a good one. Um, I don't know the finding that eighteen hundred pound 
you know, uh, hang his uh, bull inside that abandoned adobe shack. That, that was always one that made me scratch my head. Uh, yeah. Um, the one uh, from Werfano County with uh, the C-130 dropping, the C-131 dropping a parachute of a big uh, load of, of something with these big triple parachutes, and it, it missed the, the Permian uh, Arco plant and landed in a, a farmer's field, and he went out and grabbed it and, and, and hustled it into his his uh, his barn and was accosted by some you know black ops guys. And then as, as he was unconscious, his neighbors saw these, these like, weird, like, Glenda the Goodwitch bubbles flying around with guys sitting inside with these weird magnet-type things clacking and sparks coming off them. What? And they were looking like they were trying to search for this for this cargo load that had been misdropped, and then guys in jetpacks came out, and there were UFO sites, all sorts of weird What? I've never heard this. Yeah, that was a real good one. This just, that this just doesn't... I think 96, maybe? I think we better go into this next time you're on. Okay. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's in my uh, second book, I think. I don't remember reading that. I mean, that's... Yeah, the Sheep Mountain incident, and then Stephen Greer... Uh, a couple of months later, um, had his famous uh, encounter, or no, a couple of months before, had his strange encounter with the beans, uh, you know, at the, the pot of falls where he claimed he was surrounded by ET elders and there was all these witnesses. And then, you know, I debunked his news story that he released the following day. Huh. And he, I, I, the, the two, the, those two incidences were in, Pretty close proximity to one another, and fairly close in time too. It's very bizarre. I don't know. There's so many, Greg. Yeah, yeah. That's the, there's tons. The uh, the one in Pennsylvania. Both case, of course, down yeah. in South America. Yeah, Stan Gordon's uh, case with the uh, with the uh, Bigfoot right, and the UFOs. Right, Bigfoot and uh, shooting the Bigfoot and the UFO and all that. Yeah, yeah. that was a classic. So yeah, there, there's tons of them. Anyway, we'll talk about it next time. We've we've got a few minutes left. Um. So, Chris, uh, when when's, when did you say the book was? About three months should be released. Yeah, or? I figure around the beginning of October it should be out. Okay, excellent. And what's what's going to be the title again? Stalking the herd. All right. Uh, Unraveling let, the cattle mutilation mystery, or at least attempting to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we can look that up on Amazon and pre-order it, and um, when it when it's released, we'll have Chris on again, if not before, and. Uh, yeah unravel that one possibly or maybe yeah. unravel it even tighter who knows yeah good luck don't don't pull the knot undo it yeah don't make it tighter <laughs> all right i i've got a um you haven't heard this chris and when i when i post the show i'll have it on but it's a song about cattle mutilations done by a outsider musician that my friend um peter stencil is is producing an album of of her music it's oh, this no, woman huh? from Minnesota. She's got a song about being in the San Luis Valley and being a rancher and having all her cattle being mutilated. Oh, really? Oh, man. Small yes. world, huh? <laughs> I yes. can't wait to hear that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on again, Chris. And um, Always a pleasure, Greg. Like I said, always, I always say uh, this is my favorite show to be on. So. Well, you're one of my favorite guests because we always talk about, you know, we always get into stuff that where, where my mouth's hanging open and I'm laughing. And if that's the case, it's a great show. <laughs> cool. Or both. Oh, good. Coming from you, that's a rave, man. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thanks so much. Are, are you going to hang you, up? Or you... Greg, I, 
Okay. Hi to everybody, Walter. And uh, and yeah. uh, finally, I'll get a chance to meet uh, meet uh, your buddy Go Lightly. Yes. All right. And say hi to Sigrid for me too. I will do that. Thanks so much, Chris. Okay. Cool, man. Have a good night. You too. See ya. Bye. Bye. Chris O'Brien, uh, forthcoming book on uh, probably his final book on the cattle mutilation phenomenon, which will be, if you listen to the show, is going to be, I hate to use the term mind-blowing. It probably will be. I can't remember who the artist is on this song, but I'll play, you know, I'll let it play out here while Bob's setting up, and um, I will uh, credit uh, her uh, when I post the show uh, on the Roddy Mysterioso site. It's called Lonesome Cowpokes Lament. Oh, let me plug it into the computer so you can actually hear it. Um, ooh, that's nice. So uh, we'll be back next week. No guest yet, but who knows will pop what will happen in the next week and what will pop up. Uh, stay tuned for At the Show with Bob, and here's Lonesome Cowpokes Lament. Chase me away. 
Go back where you come from and leave my 